Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. My name is Lachlan Miller. I'm a Bible College graduate from SNBC, a current pastor at Nawi Baptist Church, and for these reasons, I've been very kindly given the title of expert on this show. Now, the premise of this show is that each week we discuss a passage of the Bible, getting the three different perspectives of an expert, a pastor's kid, and a new Christian. But you've actually caught us between seasons right now. We've just finished 18 episodes on the book of Genesis, and we're preparing for our next season in the book of Acts. However, while we prepare, we thought it would be helpful to provide some supplementary material for all of our listeners. Now, two foundational beliefs of this podcast is that God is real and that the Bible is God's word. Now, in a previous episode, I spent time defending the idea that God is real. And in this episode, we're going to look at the idea of is the Bible God's word? And so please join us as we get started on that topic. Now, the Christian Bible contains 66 different books. 39 of them are the Old Testament and 27 of them are the New Testament. So as you can see, the Bible is less of a book and more of a library, a collection of books written by dozens of individuals across thousands of years. Now, we're actually going to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament in this episode, and we're going to ask the same two questions of each. Firstly, how did this testament come together? And secondly, why should we believe it? So let's dive into part one, how did the Old Testament come together? The Old Testament, which is also known as the Hebrew Bible, primarily documents the history of Israel and their interactions with God. The most significant moment in Israel's history is from approximately the 15th century BC when they received laws written by God himself, the Ten Commandments. God inscribed these commandments on tablets and then had Moses place them in the Ark of the Covenant. Now Moses, as God's mediator to Israel, was also commanded by God to write down many other laws and stories, and these are all recorded in the books of Moses, which we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, these five books are also called the Torah, and these are the backbone of the Hebrew Bible. Later on, individuals and groups within Israel's history would also have encounters with God and record these events down with the nation of Israel placing these later writings on an almost equal footing with the Torah. Most of those who took it upon themselves to write about these encounters were prophets, which were people who were seen to be the mouthpiece of God, and thus by the very nature of their role would have the ability to accurately record and interpret God's revelations. In 435 BC, After a millennia of prophets preaching and writing to the nation of Israel, the last recognized prophet of Judaism died. Rabbinic literature from this and the following centuries explains this as the end of the prophetic age. An example is a quote from the Talmud, which says, After the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Other Jewish texts also reinforce this belief, such as 1 Maccabees, which says, prophets ceased to appear among them. Or the Jewish historian Josephus, who said that nothing had been written worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Now, with the ending of this line of prophets, the books that bore their authority became canonized into the Hebrew Bible. 
Josephus in AD 37 writes that the agreed upon books were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. This is our Old Testament today, and this is how it came together. If you'd like to start reading the Old Testament, start in the very beginning with Genesis, and as you read, listen along to the second season of our podcast, which is on that very book. This leads us to part two of our episode, Why Should We Believe the Old Testament? Now, I'm sure there are good Jewish arguments for this, but as a Christian, I look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith, and when I do, this is what I see. I see a man who believed that the Old Testament contained the words of God. For instance, in Matthew 15, verses 3 to 4, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Or in Matthew 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus says, Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus didn't just believe the parts of the Old Testament that directly quote God. Jesus also assumed and stated that God was the direct author of other parts of the Old Testament, even when those parts do not claim it for themselves. For example, you can look at Matthew 1, verses 22, Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 5. Jesus also believed that the Old Testament was totally relevant to his audience. In John 10, verse 35, he says scripture, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, cannot be put aside. In Matthew 5, verses 17 to 18, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, this last verse also shows that Jesus thought that the Old Testament, which can be summarized by saying the law and the prophets, was inspired right down to the smallest bit of punctuation and the tiniest word choice. Now, some will object that I'm currently quoting the Bible to defend the Bible. Fair point. But... If we take the New Testament documents as only semi-accurate historical texts, it is clear what the historical Jesus thought about the Old Testament. In fact, we have 295 references from the New Testament affirming that Jesus himself considered the Old Testament to be divinely inspired. Now, this would align Jesus with all of his contemporaries, you see, the Jews of Jesus' day believed that their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was written by humans but was inspired by God. The Jews of Jesus' day believed that scripture was literally breathed out by God. They believed that he was the ultimate author of the Old Testament and they viewed every word of the Old Testament as God's words. So, if you want to live the way of Jesus... You must follow him in his belief that the Old Testament is something to be totally believed. The historical Jesus unquestionably believed this. So I guess what we need to do now is to move on to looking at why I believe that the historical Jesus knew what he was talking about, something that we actually get from the New Testament. But before we move on to the New Testament, 
I'd like to take us on just a very quick tangent. Because while historically the Old Testament has 39 books, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have several additional books within their Old Testaments. And these books are commonly called the Apocrypha. Now, for the Catholics, the Apocrypha includes Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Ecclesiasticus, 1 and 2 Maccabees, and the Wisdom of Solomon. Now, while the early church did not initially consider these books to be part of the Old Testament, they were very popular Jewish writings from the first century. And they were included in Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible in approximately AD 385. Although in that translation, Jerome does specifically state that the books of the Apocrypha were not canon, but rather just helpful books for a Christian to read. Despite this warning, the Roman Catholic Church officially accepted the Apocrypha as part of the Old Testament at the Council of Trent in AD 1546. And the Greek Orthodox Church also accepted an Apocrypha at the Synod of Jerusalem in AD 1672. Now, Protestant Christians following the lead of the early church, still refused to accept these books as part of our Old Testament, and there are four main reasons why. Number one, the Apocrypha is believed to have been written in Hebrew, yet we do not have any Hebrew manuscripts of these books, only translated copies. Now, it should be obvious that while translations can be excellent, they can never be perfect, and therefore, without access to Hebrew manuscripts for any of the books in the Apocrypha, the early church was simply unwilling to include them. Number two, the books of the Apocrypha have never been part of the Hebrew Bible. Josephus records that he and his contemporaries did not consider these texts to be of equal status to the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And who was a contemporary of Josephus? Jesus himself. I find this second reason very compelling because the Apocrypha is a collection of Jewish writings that the Jews don't think are inspired. Number three, the New Testament authors never cite any statement from these books. In fact, no book from the Apocrypha is ever even mentioned in the New Testament. And number four, the Apocrypha is rife with inconsistencies. Consider this statement by scholar E.J. Young. Both Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. The books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation depend upon works of merit. Ecclesiasticus and the Wisdom of Solomon teach a morality based upon pragmatism. Wisdom of Solomon teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. Ecclesiasticus teaches that the giving of alms make atonement for sin. In Baruch, it is said that God hears the prayers of the dead. And in 1 Maccabees, there are historical and geographical errors. There are no marks in these books which, which would attest a divine origin. Now, ultimately, I find these four reasons extremely convincing that the Apocrypha should not be included in our Old Testaments, which means, tangent over, let's head into part three of this episode, how did the New Testament come together? Now, in a similar way to how the Old Testament was primarily written by prophets, the New Testament was primarily written by apostles who were eyewitnesses to everything Jesus did. The apostles claimed that they wrote with the authority of Jesus, an authority that even surpassed the authority of the divinely inspired Old Testament. And they also reinforced the authority and the authenticity of the other apostles, such as when Peter explicitly says that Paul's letters are to be considered part of Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. 
Now, due to their personal experience with Jesus, basically everything that the apostles wrote was automatically deemed important by the early church, with basically every church across the Roman world agreeing that they should consider these texts as divinely inspired. There are, however, five books in the New Testament not written by apostles, and they are Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude. Now, due to Mark's close association with the apostle Peter, with the book of Mark actually being based off the teachings of Peter, Mark's gospel was quickly accepted into the canon. Similarly, due to Luke's close association with the apostle Paul and Paul's testimony that Luke's works were scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, Luke's two books were also widely accepted. This only leaves the books of Jude and Hebrews. Now, Jude was Jesus' brother and the brother to the Apostle James. So you would have thought his acceptors would have been really simple, really easy. However, there was some disagreement in the early church because Jude quotes the non-canonical book of Enoch as well as several Greek poets. The main argument that got Jude accepted into the canon in the mind of the early church was that unlike the rest of the New Testament, where scripture is introduced with phrases such as God says, scripture says, or it is written, Jude uses no such introduction for his Enoch quote and thus does not validate either it or the Greek poets he quotes as being inspired. We are now left with just Hebrews, which is the most interesting case in the New Testament, as it was initially included in the New Testament because it was believed to have been written by the Apostle Paul. But Paul's authorship of Hebrews was quickly challenged, and Origen in AD 254 says that who actually wrote the epistle only God knows. However, the book of Hebrews was so beloved by the early church that even with the authorship a mystery, most churches refused to throw it out. Modern biblical scholar Wayne Grudem says that it would seem the majestic glory of Christ that shines from the pages of Hebrews warrants its inclusion, and no believer who reads it seriously should ever doubt its inclusion in the canon. Now, in the 20th century, some scholars have questioned whether other books, such as the Didache, the Gospel of Thomas, or the Shepherd of Hermas, should be considered for inclusion. But these books have no reliable link to an apostle, and unlike Hebrews, they contain teachings that are in clear contradiction to the rest of the affirmed scriptures. In fact, since the church agreed upon the canon of the New Testament, there have been no strong candidates for addition, nor any strong objections to anything currently within it. So, from the records that have survived to the modern day, it seems that the agreement on what was to be included in the New Testament occurred in AD 367, when Athanasius publicised the list of books that the Eastern Church had accepted as scripture, which the Western Church then agreed with at the Council of Carthage in AD 397. This agreement finalised the canon of the New Testament, which contains the books of... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2 and 3 John, Jude and Revelation. If you'd like to start reading the New Testament for yourself, start at the beginning with Matthew. And as you read, also listen to the first season of our podcast, which is on that very book. Finally, we hit part four of our episode, why should we believe the New Testament? 
I think there are three reasons that we should. Number one, Jesus believed it. Number two, the New Testament claims it. And number three, the Holy Spirit confirms it. So beginning with Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Old Testament that Jesus clearly believed in ends with the expectation of a coming Messiah. The historical Jesus clearly believed that to be him. It is the reason that Jesus was put to death. It was also his direct claim. For example, in Luke 24, verse 17, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or in John 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Given the historical Jesus' beliefs about the Old Testament as God's words, and given the historical Jesus' claim about being the Messiah, we should expect a God-inspired record of his words and deeds to be preserved. In fact, in John 14 verse 26, Jesus promises that the apostles would be given the ability from the Holy Spirit to accurately recall his words and deeds and interpret them rightly for future generations. You see, in that verse, Jesus promises a new testament. And why should we believe Jesus at all? At this point, I'd love to direct you towards either our previous episode on the evidence for God or our episode on Matthew 28. Both go through the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God, and his words on all matters are to be believed. And after looking at the evidence for the resurrection, I think we have excellent proof of a miracle, and therefore a good reason to accept the New Testament as God's word. To quote the Apostle Paul, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised... Ignore his opinion on both the Old and New Testaments, but if he has been raised, believe in it. Now, we could end the episode there, but it would be amiss of me not to also give you the other two reasons to believe in the New Testament, starting with the fact that the New Testament itself claims that we should believe it. If you're watching on YouTube, a slide should be coming up right now listing a whole range of Bible verses where New Testament authors claimed that they wrote with the authority of Jesus, an authority that was at least, if not more, than the divinely inspired Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament believed that they were writing Scripture, and even the most cursory reading of the New Testament would confirm this belief. So what would we expect of a text that was from God? Personally, I'd expect it to be perfectly internally consistent, perfectly historically accurate, and have evidence of the supernatural, whether that be through miracles or fulfilled prophecy. So firstly, the message of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is uncannily consistent. Check. First point done. Secondly, the events of the New Testament in particular are well supported by other literary and archaeological sources. Ed Sanders of Duke University says that when comparing the Christian and non-Christian accounts, there is no substantial doubt about the general course of Jesus' life. This includes some rather niche things, like when the pagan historian Thallos in AD 50, who in the third volume of his histories, mentions darkness in the form of an eclipse coinciding with the death of Jesus. This perfectly mimics the Gospel of Mark, which says that when Jesus died, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. 
Another niche example is the work of the Roman historian Suetonius in AD 120, who says that Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, which perfectly supports the events of Acts chapter 18. There is also plenty of archaeological evidence. For example, some people used to be sceptical towards the New Testament because Jesus was from Nazareth, but nowhere in ancient writings beside the New Testament was a place called Nazareth found. However, in 1950, an archaeological team discovered the remains of Nazareth, a small village of distinctly Jewish design which would have been populated by around 2,000 people. In fact, the different locations where Jesus visited and ministered have all been confirmed as real places that can be confirmed by archaeology. Historian Sir William Ramsey says that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts refers to 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands, yet the author never makes a single geographical mistake. This is all hugely helpful in supporting the idea that the New Testament is perfectly historically accurate. Thirdly, I would expect a God-given text to have evidence of the supernatural. Now, the early church who affirmed the New Testament of Scripture clearly wholeheartedly believed in miracles, specifically in the miracles performed by the New Testament authors. This has always been part of the Christian belief that miracles are used by God to affirm those who speak on his behalf. We see that way at the very beginning with Moses and many other prophets in the Old Testament. We also clearly see that in Jesus and the New Testament authors as well. Miracles confirm the authority of the one who is teaching, whether that teaching be through their speech or through their writings. Now, we of course can't see past historical events. We can't see the miracles that led the early church to wholeheartedly accept the writings of the apostles, which can be hard for us living in the 21st century. But we can do good history to see if there are any events when affirming the claimed miracle is the only possible logical option. And again, I feel the need to raise the resurrection of Jesus as my prime example. And from the topic of miracles, I now turn to the topic of prophecy. A quick investigation into the literature written on this topic by biblical scholars reveals that there are well over 300 identified biblical prophecies relating to the Messiah, with every single one of them being fulfilled by Jesus. In fact, it is thought that over a hundred of these prophecies could only have been fulfilled by Jesus. These numbers are just staggering. If you want some examples, go read Psalm 22 and then go read the crucifixion account in any of the four Gospels. These writings are separated by centuries, yet they align so well that many people conclude that the author of both the Psalms and the Gospels must have been inspired. Or go read Isaiah 53 also written centuries before the birth of Jesus, and ask yourself if any other person in history, apart from Jesus, fulfills all of these criteria. They were pierced, beaten, whipped, remained silent before the executioner, died in their prime with no descendants, was sinless yet killed like a criminal with a rich man's burial, yet did not stay dead and would end up with innumerable descendants slash followers. Isaiah's prophecies clearly narrow down the people who could even claim to be the Messiah, and ultimately they only leave one option open to us, the Jesus of the New Testament. Or as a final example, go read Daniel chapter 9, who in 445 BC stated explicitly that the Messiah would come in 483 years. Now, a Hebrew year was 360 days, so to change 483 of their years into 
Our equivalent leaves us with 476 years. 476 years from 445 BC is AD 30, the exact time period Jesus lived in. Now, scholars to this day still debate whether Jesus was crucified in AD 30 or AD 33, which means the exact date Daniel gives for the coming Messiah is either just as Jesus was beginning his three-year ministry or just as Jesus was entering Jerusalem for the final time. After the Messiah's death, Daniel chapter 9 also says that Jerusalem and the temple itself would be destroyed. And within a single generation of Jesus' death, the Roman general Titus did exactly this. So what does all this tell us? Well, the New Testament claims to be God's word to us, and it is perfectly internally consistent. It is perfectly historically accurate, and it does have evidence of the supernatural through both miracles and fulfilled prophecy. This is enough for me to believe its claims about being God's word. Our final reason to believe the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit confirms it. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1646, is a document beloved by Protestants. And it says that the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very Word of God. What does this mean? I'm going to quote another old person, John Calvin, to hopefully explain it a little bit better. He says... The testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason, for as God alone can properly bear witness to his own words, so these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets, must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted." John Calvin is saying that when one becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives them an inner assurance that the New Testament is to be trusted. And while not universally true, this does certainly seem to be the trend of Christianity across history. Not convinced? Then go and read the New Testament slash just the whole Bible for yourself. Then go read it with a friend, go read it with a pastor, and then read it with us. Read both the Old and the New Testaments, and you might just end up convinced by the Holy Spirit that these words are to be believed as God's words. So here is where I'm going to wrap up. And as I do so, I'd love to encourage you to subscribe and follow the Expert PK and Newbie podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and the podcast streaming platform of your choice. Leave us a comment to let us know your thoughts. Send this to a friend to help stimulate discussion on this topic. And if you would be at all interested in financially supporting us, check us out on Patreon. Otherwise, let me close in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it is really useful in living our lives here and in understanding you better. I pray that you'd be using your Holy Spirit to confirm your word in all of our hearts as we read through it, that we may fully trust in it and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you next time. Bye. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.